0: The scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Please stand. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and from the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word.
1: Well, good morning again. Let's pray as we get started. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for your word, for this book, this letter of 2 Corinthians that we have been working through. I pray that this scripture would impact us, would change the way we view you, would change the way we view our resources and how we use them. May my words be useful to you, God, and to this church. May I build them up and encourage them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1913, which is a long time ago, the New York Tribune published a story with the following title Senators in Clashes Over Wool Schedule. The article reports the vigorous debate between senators quoting several of them. And among the quotations is one of the earliest published uses of the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. Now today, that phrase is ubiquitous, right? We hear people use that phrase all the time. Maybe we have used that phrase. And I want to suggest to you that far before 1913, the Apostle Paul had something similar to say, something similar but not the same. The phrase, put your money where your mouth is, can be perceived as an attack. I mean, just consider the context of its use, a heated debate between senators. Paul, on the other hand, is careful about how he says things so as not to ruin relationships or to force people into giving. So if we were to reframe that phrase, it would be something more like, put your money where your heart is. And as we'll soon see, Paul has a number of concerns, including the Jerusalem collection, but instead of pulling their teeth, he persuasively encourages the Corinthians to give out of the conviction of their hearts and their confession of the gospel, drawing a connection again between what they believe and how they act, with the culminating reason for all of it being done to the glory of God. So, my aim for us this morning is very simple it's to show you that God. Gives us what we need to meet the needs of others, thus glorifying Him. God gives us what we need to meet the needs of others, thus glorifying Him. That's what I aim to show you, and here's how we'll get there. There are five parts to this passage that I'm going to try and move pretty quickly through. Those movements are the task of giving, the attitude of giving, the source of giving, and the results of giving. The task of the attitude, the source, and the results, and I know what you're thinking. I said there would be five, and I only said four, and we'll get there. You're just going to have to wait. Stay with me. (laughs) When we covered the first passage, oh, excuse me. When we covered the first passage on giving in chapter 8, we noted that Paul broadly begins by speaking of principles of giving, and that this passage in chapter 9 gets into the practice of giving. And last week, Bruce preached on the last part of chapter 8, showing us the leadership qualities of Paul, that as a leader, Paul was self-forgetful, valued team, and inspirational. Those are helpful to remember because we see those qualities continue to be displayed in chapter 9. In fact, I find them so helpful that we're going to use those three leadership qualities to make sense of verses 1 through 5, where Paul again brings up the task of giving towards the Jerusalem collection. So the first leadership quality to consider is Paul's inspirational leadership. A couple times, Paul mentions his confidence in the Corinthians. In verse 2, he says, I know your readiness. Which is to say, Paul's understanding of their readiness is treated as fact. He knows they are ready, like a parent might know their child is ready for something, even if the child has their doubts. That's why he opens verse 1 with saying that it's basically unnecessary for him to write about it. He just knows they're going to give. Further on in verse 2, we continue to see just how certain Paul knows this church will come through because he boasts about them to the Macedonians, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Paul's statement is reminiscent of something we might say to inspire confidence. As a kid, if someone were to ask me, are you ready to play this game? What's the response you might hear a kid say? I was born ready. I've been ready. I was born for this. It's that exaggerated response that references time, right, to inspire confidence. And Paul points out that their past readiness has actually stirred up the Macedonians. He's telling them that you guys got them fired up. And again, notice, Paul is not saying any of this about himself. That's that self-forgetful quality of his. He's saying all this about others, to lift others up, to encourage others. Paul also cares about team, as Bruce mentioned last week. And I have to say, I was first confused by the actions Paul took in these verses. But understanding their context and understanding Paul's focus on team, on relationships... Help me sort it out. I'm talking about verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read those again for us. Verse 3, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, on first reading, and in the most uncharitable light, someone might view Paul as a kind of debt collector who sends his men out before him to collect money. But Paul's not a debt collector. Paul's reason for doing this is out of concern for the team, for relationships. Specifically, Paul's own relationship with the Macedonians, his relationship with the Corinthians, and then the relationship between both of those churches. And just to be clear, in verse 2, Paul references Macedonia and Achaia, both of which were larger regions, Corinth being located within Achaia. So it's not as if Paul is bringing up another church. It would be comparable to us being referred to as the people of Massachusetts and our neighbors to the north being referred to as the people of New Hampshire. Paul has in mind two groups of people who have some distance between them, but are nevertheless neighbors in the same region. And his actions are intentionally protecting their relationship, these churches that occupy this region. And his actions are done in a cultural context. Paul's Context valued shame and honor far more than ours does. Our culture tends to emphasize guilt and innocence over shame and honor. And that's why we can read a passage like this and think: if Paul is sending people ahead of him to prepare a gift, then something's wrong. Someone's guilty in some way, I would think. However, verses five, verses four and five help us make sense of Paul's actions. In verse four, Paul describes that shame is at stake. If Paul comes down to Corinth with the Macedonians and their gift is not ready, then Paul and the Corinthians will be ashamed. And that will likely have a consequence on the relationships between Paul and these churches as well as between the churches. Look at verse 5. Not only is the possibility of shame at stake, but also the integrity of the gift is at stake. Paul wants the Corinthians to give a willing gift to give out of their own desire. Paul knows that if he were to show up with Macedonians and the gift weren't ready, not only would they be ashamed, but they'd probably end up contributing to the collection, not willingly, but as an exaction. And if that is the case, then the integrity of the gift would be tarnished. The Corinthians would feel as if they were forced into giving money out of their shame. And so Paul doesn't want that, to avoid any problems and preserve their honor, he sends brothers ahead of him to make sure that no shame takes place. And with that in mind, this beginning, highly contextualized portion is instructive for us because it shows us that while money may be the main task at hand, Paul's concern is also focused on relationships and integrity Paul is careful to avoid shaming people into giving money, because if that were the case again, the gift, however large, would not have the same integrity. That's something to keep in mind as we handle the issue of giving. Now in verses 6 and 7, Paul gets deeper into what integrity looks like. This is the attitude of giving. He begins with a simple, memorable proverb, which says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It reminds me of a modern proverb we say, which goes something like, you only get back what you put in. And there's some sort of proportionate correlation at work. That proverb helpfully sets a basic wisdom to live by, but Paul is careful not to lead to the conclusion that the highest amount contributed is the only correct way to give. In verse 7, he goes on to say, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now think about that. Paul is suggesting that we decide this matter with our hearts. How do we normally think about our hearts? If you have a theology of sin, you typically think of this passage uh, in light of Jeremiah 17:9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Or as the old King James put it, desperately wicked. Here in verse 7, Paul gives a positive view of the heart. Paul actually appeals to the heart as a trustworthy guide to decide how much to give. And again, why is he doing this? Because he's concerned with integrity. He wants to make sure that any gift, any contribution is done, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but willingly, freely from the heart. Whatever is given It's given because someone decided it for themselves, not anyone else. And the rationale he gives for saying this is God himself, saying God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul, in speaking about our own hearts, motivates his readers and us with the very heart of God. Now, we shouldn't run away with this and go on thinking if we give more, then God will love us more. Church history has shown us that that sort of thinking is corrupt, leads to all sorts of problems. You cannot buy God's love. It's not that God loves us more when we give, but simply that God loves when we cheerfully give. It's pleasing in his sight, because this sort of giving is exactly how God gave to us. It reflects his character. I think Hebrews puts it best. In chapter 12 of that great litter, we see this. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. The cross was a grueling, tragic event, and yet the author of Hebrews confirms to us that still, Jesus considered it a joy to endure it, willingly giving himself for the good of others. That is the sort of attitude that should color our own giving, a giving which stems right from the heart, not of reluctancy, not under compulsion, but of cheer, of joy. And just as Paul does, we would do well to remember that our hearts should be impacted by the very heart of God. Earlier, the choir sang the song Consecration. It's a beautiful song which has a verse that I think embodies this attitude. I'll read it to you again. It says, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. You hear the willing attitude of those lyrics? The attitude that just says, Take it, not a mite would I withhold. Not a penny will I withhold. Now, to be sure, giving up our hard-earned money and resources is a difficult thing. And so Paul brilliantly moves to talking about the things we have and might hope to have. Which brings us to our third movement, the source of giving. In verses 8 through 10, Paul deliberately and simply points out that God is the source of all giving. In verse 8, it is God who is able to make grace abound and consequently is able to make you abound in every good work. And quoting Psalm 112, Paul shows us that God has always been concerned with this. First, read verse 10 with me. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, Paul notes God as the source. Who is it that supplies the seed? Who is it that supplies bread? It's God. And Paul uses that to say the same God who supplies seed and food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And what is that seed of the Corinthians? It's the resources, the gift, the contribution they're they're looking to give. And the outcome of this sowing is inspiring. It's the hope of a future increase of their harvest of righteousness which relates right back to Psalm 112. If you read Psalm 112, it's concerned with righteousness. Paul uses it as an example. Psalm 112 presents two kinds of people, those who are righteous, those who are not. It's the righteous who distribute freely and give to the poor. So for Paul to quote this psalm does a couple of things. It tells the Corinthians that this isn't new, this thing that he's talking about. It also tells them that being God's righteous people means you also will be concerned with this sort of giving. By quoting this psalm, Paul gives his reader, readers a scriptural standard, and that scriptural standard remains for us, for you and me. But the other significant implication of Paul's words for us is that all that we have has been given by God. He's the one who's resourced us And just like the Corinthians, we have continued opportunities to demonstrate righteousness with our resources. One pastor put it this way, the simple truth is, God will give us what we need to give to others. We will always be rich enough to be generous. That to me is a memorable phrase, we'll always be rich enough to be generous. And such a statement finds continued support as we go through the passage. We're moving quick here. Verse 11, the results of giving. Paul says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In this verse, you get a sense of purpose. Paul can confidently say to them, they will be enriched in every way, in their money, in their grace, in their good works, in their righteousness. But that richness is to be put to use. They will be enriched to be generous. Generosity is the purpose. And the result of all this is the thanksgiving of God. Verse 12: For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul notes a pair of results. And in verses 11 to 15, the result which Paul cares about the most is thanksgiving to God. Or as he references it in verse 13, the glory of God. So four times, Paul notes that God receives praise as a result of generous giving. And in fact, as you probably noticed, that's how Paul ends the whole chapter. And through his praise... He ends the chapter the same way he opened it, which is having total confidence in the Corinthians, that they will contribute to the Jerusalem collection. So to conclude this section, Paul says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And it's so masterful how Paul ends this passage that I want to unpack it for you as best as I can to show you just how skillfully Paul's movements are and to get an overall sense of this chapter so here's three observations for you the first as we noted at the outset is paul as a leader encourages the corinthians to give and as a leader he does a number of things he inspires them by selflessly boasting them up and he is careful to protect their honor and relationships in this act of giving. and verse 15, part of what Paul does is preemptively thank God for the gift that he has yet to collect. Paul has written this letter to ask something of them, and by the end of this passage, he's thanking God for a job well done. Imagine if I come to you with a favor to ask, and before you have a chance to respond, I say, thank you for doing this. (laughs) Thanks for helping me out. I really appreciate it. Wouldn't that seem premature, almost rude, to assume that you will do that favor for me? It could be seen that way. But here, I think we see another display of Paul's leadership. Again, he demonstrates his confidence in the Corinthians, which I would think would have an impact on his readers. Think about this. How meaningful is it to you when someone communicates their confidence in you? When someone says things like, I believe in you, I trust you, well, the degree of confidence Paul is articulating is stronger than either of those statements. His confidence in their future action is so certain that he can presently praise God for it. Second, Paul makes an overarching movement from task to thanksgiving, from gift to glory, from work to worship. And this grand overarching movement is indicated by his progressive emphasis on God. When he starts the passage, he talks about the task, right? There's Paul, the Macedonians, the Corinthians, and this gift. And, the, and once he gets into the attitude of giving, he brings up the love of God. And from there, he crescendos further to speaking of God as the source of all things. Finally, leading up to the climax of Thanksgiving, which leads Paul to burst with praise. That's the last verse of our chapter. And that's remarkable because when you know that someone is going to talk about giving money, I wouldn't have guessed that that conversation would end with worship. But here, Paul does that. Ends with worship. Thirdly, Paul is masterful in his word choice, and presentation because his final expression of praise includes a number of things. The ESV is unique in saying inexpressible. Most other translations say indescribable gift. The NLT describes this gift as a gift too wonderful for words. All those translations do justice to what Paul is saying here. However, it's translated, you get the sense that Paul's burst of praise includes their gift of contribution, yet it's not limited to the Corinthians' gift. As one scholar notes, this inexpressible gift likely refers to a number of things. Things Paul already talked about in his letter that are connected together. Things like the gift of salvation, the gift of God's Son, the gift of God's grace, likely having in mind chapter 8, verse 9. Which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus' own action was an expression of it was an inexpressible gift. So amazing if we step back and consider the chapter as a whole. Hope you recognize that when Christians handle the topic of giving, when we talk about resources, there's a lot more than just money to talk about. This chapter alone includes things like relationships, integrity, our hearts, worship, thanksgiving. Those are all important parts of the conversation and the act. Yet out of all those things, again, the one thing that shines through the most in this passage is worship. That's what Paul emphatically ends with which helpfully simplify things for us. Our generous giving can be opportunities to glorify God, so much so that we should understand the nature of our gifts in light of glory as God-glorifying gifts. To emphasize the glory of God and the thanksgiving of God is good for us because it helps keep God at the center keep him at the center, which is another way for us to demonstrate to one another and to others that it's not about us. It's about others. It's about God. And giving in this way is an opportunity to live out our commitment to something as simple as the greatest commandment, which is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. So while Paul writes about the practice of giving, he does so with some really basic Christian teaching. Love for God and love for neighbor should permeate all we do, including how we give. Now before we close, I want to suggest to you one more critical aspect of giving. It's that fifth point I held from you at the beginning. It's what I'm calling the foundation of giving. The foundation of our giving something you've heard before. It's the gospel. Look at verse 13. Paul says, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. And I want to focus on the middle section of this verse. Consider how two other translations put it. The ESV says they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The NET says they will glorify God because of your obedience to your confession in the gospel of Christ. And the NLT says they will give glory to God because your generosity will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. What all those faithful translations of Scripture are capturing – is that the act of giving is a gospel issue. If we confess that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, died a horrific, atoning death, rose again from the dead, and now sits on the throne, then we will give generously. Thus, proving that this good news, this gospel, has changed our lives, has impacted our lives. An impact which results in worship of God when we lived in Chicago, we uh, attended a small church, smaller than 60 people on average, on a Sunday morning. And I loved that church. It was a church plant. And Steph and I attended before we got married, and then when we were poor newlyweds, we attended there as well. And there was this couple, Chris and Megan, that lived this way that we experienced. They had a 1995 Dodge Grand Caravan, and it was not a luxurious van. And they sold that van to us for a dollar. We were in need. We were just some poor newlyweds. (laughs) And this couple... Out of the conviction of their hearts and the confession of the gospel, they gave generously to us. They helped us and met our need. And what I should have done more, but what I can do now is praise God for that, to worship, to give thanksgiving to God for that act of provision. And now being here, and I mean even in high school, remembering and seeing you know, I can testify to the generosity of Westgate. I bet you could too if I were to press you and ask you. I have witnessed you generously care for one another to see you live out the gospel that you confess, the gospel that you profess. Many of you already know that God has resourced you to help others. And it's one of those Things that, it, it's so great as a pastor where you can boast about your church, not in a prideful way, but to say, I have so-and-so in mind. When I, when I think of generosity, I can look out at this congregation and say, this person. And so my commendation, my application for you is simply to keep doing it. To keep doing it. And together, let's make sure that there is no shortage of opportunities to glorify God by our generosity. To again demonstrate our, the conviction of our hearts and the confession of the gospel we profess. So, again, going to end how I started. The thing to take away God. Gives us what we need to meet the needs of others, thus glorifying Him. God gives us what we need to meet the needs of others, thus glorifying Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for. Your word, the way it makes us think, challenges our hearts and our minds. Thank you for your Son, demonstrating grace to us, generosity to us, that you who were rich for our sake became poor so that we might become rich. May the gospel remain the foundation of all our generous giving. May it lead to thanksgiving, praise and worship, among ourselves and our neighbors. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.